eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This week on Into the Archives, a a former teammate of mine, they called him Eric the Red. He was a part of that, that World Series team in 1990. He's a Reds Hall of Famer, one of the great ones, Eric Davis. Sometimes you just need to enjoy a classic. Join us as we go into the archives. Hey, we going back. And put our ear to the history books with this one. This is Into the Archives. Here's your host, Brett Boone. All right. So 1990, uh, you lead the Reds to the playoffs. And in an unlikely scenario... You sweep the big bad A's. You got the Bash Brothers and Ricky and Dave Stewart, and you guys sweep them in four. One of the one of the biggest. I don't necessarily because I know you. I talked to Lark. I had Lark on the podcast, uh, and he said everybody. We were the underdog to the entire world except for us. We didn't think we were the underdog, and you ended up proving not. But I want to talk about uh, that was a big turning point for you because you end up. On a play in the outfield, lacerating your kidney. Tell me, yeah. tell me that whole story. What happened? Well, you have to know the story leading up to the story. I I tore a ligament in my knee still in third base in Philadelphia. They had watered it down really, really high, and 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 when I slid in, my back knee stuck. So I end up tearing a ligament. Uh, but I don't get surgery. So if you notice that year, I wore a big knee brace from my high tops all the way up to my thigh. And that's why I was the only reason that I was in left field, you know what I'm saying, was because of the torn ligament in my knee. That's the only reason that I was playing left field because Billy Hatcher was the left fielder. I was the center field. And Billy had to move over to center for that series or for, for that second half of the year. Yes. Yes. So, so that was the reason that I was out of position anyway, but I'm going to make a play and, and, and I had jammed my shoulder at the last, probably like the last week of the season running into the wall. 
So I'm telling myself, okay, I see the play. Willie McGee hits one, but it don't slice. So it's staying true. So I'm diving to catch it. But I'm telling myself, don't roll on your right side to catch it because of my shoulders. So I tell myself to roll to the left side. But when I hit, my elbow went up under my rib cage and lacerated puncture my kidney. So, so I dropped the ball. If you watch the play, I picked the ball up and I throw it all the way in, 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 into Larkin backwards. Okay. So now I'm getting up and, and uh, I, I don't know if it was Harold Baines or somebody else was getting ready to hit. But in the midst, the whole scene slowed down because now the pain doesn't hit me when they're getting ready to pitch. And I'm actually trying to call timeout, to call Barry to call timeout to come get me because this ain't good. Something is not good. But nothing is coming out. And thank God he hit a fly ball to, to Paul, I think, or they did something. So I'm getting ready to lead off the fourth inning. Uh, excuse me, I'm getting ready to lead off the second inning because I was at, at, the, uh, the, at the plate when Hatcher got thrown out. So I sit down to grab, grab my breath. And when I get ready to get up, I couldn't get up. So I call the trainer and I'm like, something wrong. And that's when you can see the, the things of them, them taking me up them stairs in Oakland. You know how the clubhouse is up almost three flights of stairs in Oakland. Right. So I'm going up to these stairs and, I, and, and the pain is just really enormous now. But I don't know what's happening. So what they do is I team doctor come down there and he's telling me with this and he don't really know what I did. I don't know how to lacerated my kidney. So he asked me to use the, uh, to ask me to take a piss. He said, you got to use the bathroom. I said, yeah, I got to use the bathroom. He said, well, take this cup so that we can see if there's any blood. And I pissed a big cup full of nothing but blood. And it scared me. And that's when I started crying. Because anytime you urinate red, straight blood, no urine is coming out. It's just straight blood. So I'm knowing something is wrong. So it was crazy. So how they took me... <laughs> Now, I got 50 people from, from, from L.A. and my mom and everybody. So my wife and my mom them come down and they're going to, to take me to the hospital. So they put me in a van. I don't even get in an ambulance. They put me in a van, put me in the back of a van with my mom and my wife and they lay me down. And it seemed like we go for 50 minutes only. And I don't know what hospital we end up. It seemed like we passed. But now, mind you, I got a police escort. Right? But the siren ain't on. <laughs> we stopping at lights trying to get on the freeway and everything. So we going past and now to know my mother is to know that I'm a I'm a mama's boy, I'm the baby. And she just at her wits because she's seeing what's happening. And she's and she letting everybody have it. So we get close to the <laughs> we get close to the hospital and he put the siren on. Just to get in the hospital. Now, might have took us 40 minutes. I done pissed a big gulp full of blood, and it take us 35, 40 minutes to get to the hospital, right? So when I get to the hospital, they check me in and stuff. And once they check me in, that's all I knew. And, and the next thing I knew, I was in the bed with an epidural in my back, 
and and Larry, I want to say Larry and somebody came by there the next day and said we had won, but I wasn't really in in and out. And they left. After that, they left. After we won it, they was gone. And so my family and everybody is still at the hotel. Mind you, I'm in the hospital for 14 days in Oakland. Now, they was I was told, the doctor told me I was about Oh, excuse me, 45 minutes away from them having to take my kidney out. But he said a blood clot formed around my kidney and stopped the bleeding. And that's the only thing that saved him from having to take my kidney out. So I stayed there and and he, he, he said, if you took a tomato and you just threw it on the ground, that's how my kidney looked. Just from that elbow, he said, I could dive a million times and never do it again. But at that time and that move, it was it was for that to happen. And so um, they put me on the plane. No, prior to that, they asked me, would the owners fly me back? Because they said, Eric, if you go back there, because I was going to send a hospital another two weeks and they didn't want me there for a whole month. And so I was like, yeah, they'll fly me back. Why not? I'm not, I'm that dude. And we just won. So my agent called Bob Quinn and Bob Quinn said, you make $3 million letting fire his own plane. And I was like, huh? He said, yeah, that's what you got to do. So I called Marge and she said she didn't know nobody with this and this and this. So ultimately I end up chartering the plane and sending her the bill. And that's when all of the rhetoric behind me and Marge and Bob Quinn and, and uh, ultimately that's why I got traded in the 91 after 91 season was because of how they knew they treated me. And and Lou and all those guys after the fact. And me and Lou are friends now, but he always tell me how how much of a mistake he made in all of that situation. Because there was no rules on how you handle with stuff. And I didn't stop only I didn't stop urinating blood until February like fifteenth and we opened camp February eighteenth. And I didn't do any rehab or anything. And I want to say it set me back almost four years. Almost four years. So, wow. So you go from coming off the field, not being able to get up and go hit. Piss mm-hmm. and blood. Hospital. That 90s team, that great team, wins the World Series. They probably had a parade. Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. sitting. You're still sitting in L.A. and they're Oakland. telling you you make three million. Fly yourself back. I, I, yeah. I want to know when you sent Marge the bill. What happened? Did it get paid? Yeah, she paid it. But All see, right. by that time, it had gotten so much press. Right. Um, it became a from thing. what they had. Uh, it, it had became. Jesse Jackson came to my house. Al Sharpton came to my house. The NAACP came to my house. It had became so much more than me. Um, because March had already called me a million dollar in, the N-word at that time uh, because I was the highest paid player in the whole state of Ohio history. That I was making a million six. And she said, that's my million dollar guy. So it was already racism behind me and Marge, and now you leave me in a hospital and you don't want to. It was just so much brewing. So now I'm getting all this. And mind you, 
I'm still only like 27 years old. You know what I'm saying? And I'm right. saying, well, wait a minute. This ain't the fairy tale after winning. You know what I'm saying? How am I into all this? But it was, it was, it was crazy because nobody knew. And then the next year, after going into spring training, I'm playing. I come back the first day I play. We don't have no strength and conditioning people. We don't have weight. We don't have none of that. I didn't do no therapy on my abs or nothing. I went from tearing my kidney to urinating blood to picking up a wood bat swinging. Yeah, let's go. Yeah. So all of that in the midst of coming back in 91, which the doctor told me it was going to be anywhere between 14 and 18 months before I'm here. I came back after three months and, and it devastated my body to the point where I couldn't even hit a ball over the fence in batting practice. And, 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 and here's where Lou says he made the mistake because he thought that, 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 something else was wrong and not the kidney. See, nobody wanted to take responsibility of me having a torn kidney and not rehabbing. Because back then, the, the only trainer we had was Larry Starr. That was it. We didn't have no medical staff and no trainers and no strength and conditioning people and all of that. We didn't have none of that. And so I firmly believe that Larry wouldn't have done me like that on purpose because he didn't know what to do. Nobody had ever torn a kidney playing baseball. Right. Now, it's protocols behind all that. Now the league won't let you play if you hurt too bad. You got to pass a certain protocol. So you got so many different things now. But the only thing that bothered me was I tried to play up, up until June. And I just couldn't do it no more. So I took looting them something is wrong and stuff. So I hired my own physician and he tells him nothing. So we meeting with the brass and the brass tell me, okay, ED, we're going to put you on a disabled list. And, and, you know, and we're going to try to figure it out. But they tell me, Lou Pinella, them tell me, don't say nothing to the press, but they go make a statement saying they put me on a disabled list because I'm chronically tired. They still ain't admitted my kidney is is the problem. They said, I'm going to disable this because I'm chronically tired. So I blew a gasket and, and I MF'd all of them and, and I ridiculed all of them. And uh, that's when Lou traded me doing that off season. So How was, it, it was all behind that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and it had to be after what you went through and especially the year. I mean, that's a big year for Cincinnati. I mean, I know they had the big red machine. Oh, yeah. When you guys won in 90, that was a big deal. I remember. Oh, it was huge. I, yeah. I remember watching that. And for, for that, you know, the, at that time, you were their main star. You were the big boy in that and, lineup. Yes. Right. And that, right. And everything you went through and you're coming back, it had to be kind of, wow, uncomfortable to say the least when you come into spring training in 91. I mean, how, how was it from just, you know, you, you talked about Lude, you talked about the Marge thing. How about your teammates? Was it? Was oh, it they like was angry. Everybody was angry because they knew what was really going on. And they knew my leadership. See, I was there before any of them got there. Even though I was 
I was a couple years older in experience. I was way ahead of Larkin and Dibbo and Sabo and O'Neal and all these guys. Once we traded Parker to Oakland for the Jose Rio, it became my team. And, and, and so even though I'm still in the same age bracket as you guys, the experience, I'm way behind. I'm way past you guys. So I, I, I took over the leadership role. So anything that transpired came through me. So those guys was going, they was going to tear something up for me uh, because that's the respect I had. And that's how I treated those guys. And they all knew that it was wrong and how it was, it was going down and things of that nature. But uh, me and Lou ultimately had a conversation even when, but the conversation came when I got to Baltimore and you guys was in uh, Seattle. Right. And, and, and actually Rick Griffin was my first trainer when I was in Eugene. So that's how far me and Rick Griffin go back. <laughs> oh, yeah. And him and Greg Ridoff is my first manager. So that's how that was. And that's when he apologized to me. He said, man, I was, I was totally wrong about that whole scenario. And, and, I accepted his apology and, and we've been friends ever since. And we was always friends, but, but I just didn't like how he did that. I was like, you taking a side and you should know me because I just almost killed myself on this field for you. Yeah. And you're going to let them do me like that. So that's why me and him, that's why I got, I got at it with him. Uh, from a player standpoint, if you don't play, I ain't going to be too mad at you because you don't know that union. But when you are a player and you see another player, who like yourself who plays hard all the time and then I don't back you for, for some other reason for, for them. Nah, I'm not going to ever do that. So I felt like he crossed that line as a player that had played and didn't support me when he knew I gave everything to the team. So I had to let him have it. (laughs) Would I have let him have it? Of course. Yeah, (laughs) sure you can let him have it. Yeah, wow. Yeah. That's only would have let him have it quick. Oh, I'd let him be. And that's probably why Dibble. That's probably why Dibble fought him. It, it had all built up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, probably I why mean, Dibble I, charged him. It had all built up and shit. You know what I'm saying? So I remember. He had to release some steam. Yeah. Shoot, I had my own. I came up with Lou, and and man, you talk about going to blow. Me and him almost went to blows five times when I came up in Seattle. Mm-hmm. This was happening. This mm-hmm. is in 1993. And then fast forward to the 01 when I go back to to Seattle for that next tenure for me. Uh, it was a different ball game. You know, Lou was, mm-hmm. Lou was my favorite at that time. So, yeah, we had a yeah, I think he had mellowed out and he had saw the pressures of, 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 of winning. He had, he had really subdued himself. And he was still feisty with the umpires and stuff. But he seemed like he enjoyed it more. He enjoyed the job more than he did the early part of his career. Right. And, and that's just fact. I mean, that story right there and that time, uh, I don't know if it, well, I, I'm sure a lot of people have heard that, but, but hearing it for me, that's, that's a pretty fascinating story and, and big at the time for you. Like you said, you're only 27. Yeah. I couldn't imagine sitting in that hospital room being being that main guy in that lineup my team just won the world series and i'm like guys i'm here if you want to come over and get me take me back on the plane with you 
But, you know, it was funny because I didn't know we had won for like five days and stuff because I was incapacitated. They just kept me on morphine because I had an epidural. And and so I'd be in and out and I'd see my mom and my wife and them and I'd be up a little while and then I'd go out and I'd be up a while. And so I didn't really start coming around consistently for about a week. And, and then that's when I really know we had won the World Series and we had beat them in four and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't, I didn't really know the initial when I got there. No, I didn't have no idea. Wow. No. So we fast forward a little bit. So after 91, and you mentioned uh, a, lot of, a lot of the reasons behind you moving on to L.A. Uh, was everything that transpired in that 90 season. You get reunited with Straw, I remember. Uh, and you had yeah. some injuries. And, uh, man, I've been operated on 13 times. <laughs> uh-huh. I said, I've been operated on 13 times. Yeah. How was it that? It was amazing. It, it, it was great. You know, um, take your business further with a smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash card. To being able to play with Daryl and, and to play at home, but I... I tell people this all the time. I wouldn't have never went home because home is not for everybody. I knew too many people and, and it, it wasn't a, a good atmosphere for me at that time in my life. Um, because I was still in the, in the, in the legacy making, I was still about the game and I knew being at home, wouldn't have been just about the game. It would have been about everybody else in the neighborhood and the kids and the, and the, and the high schools and all the people that I grew up with. It became more of that. Um, so what I did was I bought 12 season tickets. I bought season tickets for my family and then I bought some for them to give to the other family members when they wanted to come so that they couldn't just call me every day and be like, can I come to the game? Because I didn't want that. But the games that Daryl and myself played together, I think we might have been like 36 and 5 or 36 and 6 or something like that. Uh, we just couldn't stay on the field. I had triple surgery. I had surgery on my hand, uh, my wrist and my shoulder. I dove after a ball. Uh, Gastar hurt his back, so Tommy moved me from left to right. The same night Daryl hurt his back, I blew my shoulder out, making a diving backhand catch in right center field. You know, so it was just one thing after the other. And I'm still trying to heal from, from the kidney. The swing is, it, so some days it feel like I got it. Then other days it was like, it was nothing there. You know, you feel like it, because you know when you hit a ball and you be like, ooh, yeah. And then they catch it at the wall and you be like, damn, I know I hit that ball better than that. Then you start looking at the flag. And the flag yeah. blowing out. <laughs> and that's what we used to you call. Know, Wait a minute. I, I used to go out of the yeah, high the, the flag is blowing out and it gets to the wall. <laughs> You're like, well, damn. Wait a minute. Something's not right. So I dealt with that for almost two and a half years. That'll weigh on your psyche, too. When that ball, you know it's gone and it's not gone. 
Man, it wasn't even close on it. And I was like, damn. So <laughs> what's really happening? <laughs> is that, have I lost it or this or that? And it was so I had to go through all of that. But what saved me uh was going to Detroit and then having a neck product. Ran into the wall in Fenway Park and messed my neck up. And then uh the, the we had the uh the strike in ninety four. So I had surgery in in '94 on my neck, and honestly, I didn't have any uh, reservation of coming back to play because my body was just beat. I was just beat up mentally, just physically beat up mentally. And the only reason I came back is I told Lark that if they made the playoffs, I would come watch because I didn't go to no games. And they end up 95, they swept the Braves, and then they played the Dodgers. <clears throat> and uh, they came to Dodger Stadium, so I came to the game, and I was on the field, and Marge saw me. And she was like, Eric, you look great. Are you, you're not going to play anymore? I said, no, I don't think I'm going to play anymore. She said, well, you need to try. If you want, if you want to play out, I would love for you to come back and come back to Cincinnati. So I was like, well, shit, well, wait a minute. Hold on now. All right. And then I said, okay, well, give me a, a month to work out. Mind you, I had not done anything in almost a year and a half. I didn't pick up a bat. I didn't train. I didn't do nothing. So I started training. And the first time I took batting practice, everything went right back to where it was like before I dove for that ball. My hands were in the right spot. My stride was there. The whip was there. And I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> you know? So the, I've always had challenges in trying to figure out things and, and, and adversity where it was always somebody that was trying to prohibit me. And that, and that 96 season, cause, cause I remember <clears throat> I got there in 94 We had Kevin Mitchell. He's, he's, he has a huge year, you know, he's kind of that rock in the middle of our, of our lineup. And that was, like you said, it was the strike year. Mitchell leaves. We bring in Ronnie Gant, who's coming off that motorcycle accident, yeah. you know, and his Braves stardom. We get him for one year. He's essentially comeback player of the year. Then it comes to 96, and here mm-hmm. comes Eric the Red back, back home to Cincinnati. And what happens? Comeback player of the year. And we're looking at Jim Bowden yeah. going, how, how are you pulling this many rabbits out of the hat? How are you this <laughs> right this many times in a row? How, how fulfilling right. is that for you right. after all this you'd been through, you know, to this point? Well, it was, it was the once again, I, I, I had, had mixed emotions because when I signed, David Johnson was the manager. Okay. Then, for whatever reason, Morris don't bring him back because his girlfriend and what all that happened. Ray Knight take over. Okay. Now, Demir Ray had a fight in 86. So I'm looking at this dude. So if you can remember, Ray did everything for me not to make the team. I wasn't on the field with y'all. I was on the backside with, with the guys you know going to get cut. Because uh, remember the boy Kelly came from Atlanta, was a center fielder. Mike Kelly. 
Mike Kelly and Vince Coleman was the left fielder because Vince Coleman came over there and Reggie Sanders was the right fielder. That's exactly right. So he did everything he could to cut me because of the fight that we had when I played. So I knew that that once he got the managerial job, it was going to be tough. But just my inner strength of me being able to read people, I saw what he was trying to do, and I didn't let him stop the journey. Um, because, because the first part of spring training, he took me on the, on the road trips and batted me ninth and shit like that. I can remember going to uh, Dunedin and play the, the Jays, and I didn't even play. He put me in the ninth inning for defense. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I'm saying, <laughs> he was doing stuff like that. So if you're doing that to me after all I've accomplished at this level, I know it's personal. So I saw what he was doing. He showed his hand too soon. So I knew that Reggie and Mike Kelly and Vince couldn't play with me. So I just let him do what he did. And I just kept raking. And I just kept raking. And uh, then Pete Shurik and and all the guys smiling them start saying, "Oh Lord, I need ED in center field." What y'all doing? Y'all tripping? So he's that's when you know that the uh, that, that everybody knew that I was supposed to be out there. So because once the pitchers start complaining, Mike Kelly them couldn't play, and and so all of that was going on and stuff. But once I knew what his game plan was, and and then. He wasn't going to stop my journey, and he didn't. But he damn sure tried to now. He tried to. Yeah, and it resulted in comeback player of the year, and I remember yeah. that year, yeah. and that's the year we yeah. met. And, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, uh, and the more we talk, it, it I see a lot because when I came to Cincinnati, you now I was a young player. This is before you came back in 96. And, mm-hmm. and I see how big of a, you know, because when I first got there, I didn't know Eric Davis. I knew Eric Davis, right. but I didn't know him. Right. But I'd, heard, I'd right. heard the stories. And I can see just in our talk right now how much you rubbed off on your teammates and, and right. how, much, right. how much Barry looked to you. You know, you were the guy that Barry mm-hmm. looked to. And then when you left, mm-hmm. Barry took on your role. And, and it comes through so vividly in talking to you today. Uh, I right. see where Barry got it. Barry got it from Boogie. Right. You know, Boogie yeah. got it from mm-hmm. somebody else, you know, and, and that's right. how this right. game is. And that's how this brotherhood is in, in the game of right. baseball. Absolutely. That is Absolutely. So awesome. And I mean, it doesn't stop for you. You go from there, 97, you get colon cancer. Yeah, at this point, right. uh, Eric, you got to just be going, all right, what's next? <laughs> I don't, hey, man. It was just like it was one thing, and and I mean, <laughs> I'm just on the ropes. Tremendous stuff. Yeah, I'm I'm leading the American League, and I'm in I'm I'm, I'm in like three ninety man in May. Just 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 bullet after bullet after bullet homers and stuff like that. And we're in Cleveland, and I just hit a triple, and I score on a sacrifice fly, and I kind of collide with Sandy, and uh. Brush it off, I score, and I'm sitting down once again. The third out, I can't get up. 
the pain hit me just like that once again. So they take me out and they run in Texas on me and they don't find us. So they give me some pain pills and I play the next day. But I'm feeling sluggish and I'm saying something ain't right because now the bat, I can't whip the bat and stuff. So I get through that game. And so we go from Cleveland to New York and we had a day game. And I played a day game and I'm sitting back home at the hotel and now the pain is really excruciating. So I call a trainer. They put me on the train from Baltimore, from New York to Baltimore. And the paramedics pick me up from the train station and take me to University of Maryland Hospital. I'm there for eight days. But they tell me that I have an abscess abscess in my stomach, but they can't tell me how it got there. So I'm saying, okay, what is an abscess? It's bacteria that build up. It's a, it's a man. So I'm saying, okay, well, how did it get there? They can't tell me. Nobody can tell me how this mass gets in my body. So thank God. But what they did was they put a, a catheter in my stomach and tried to drain it overnight. So whatever they pull out, they pull out. And they're like, well, it's not shrinking and stuff like that. So luckily, I had a friend that was from D.C. And she told me, check out of University of Maryland and go to John Hopkins. Mind you, I had been in that hospital for nine days. They was going to let me go back to play. The doctors. And so I go to John Hopkins that night. After I check out about 4 o'clock, I go right over to John Hopkins. The first test he did was a colonoscopy. Now, mind you, I'm in this hospital for eight or nine days, and they don't do a colonoscopy. The first one he do is a colonoscopy. And he said, man, you got a tumor the size of a grapefruit. We got to go get this. That was on Wednesday. And Friday, I, I had surgery because I waited for my mama and my wife to get from, from L.A. to Baltimore. And I had uh, surgery to remove a tumor the size of a grapefruit from my colon. And so from, from that aspect to... But, you know, it was a relief because for not knowing for nine days, and that was the scariest part is when somebody tells you you got something, you don't know how it got you. That was more painful than me finding out. When I found out, it was like a relief for me. I was like, okay, thank God we can go get it. He was like, you ready? I said, yeah, we ready. So we went and got it. And so I took 36 weeks of chemo. I, I came back in September. And, uh, Played after that, and then uh, came back and won my second comeback for the year war. It hit twenty three. Uh, uh, hit three twenty eight, twenty eight bombs and ninety ribbies or something like that in ninety eight. Yep. And uh, now that was more gratifying than anything that I had ever done was to. Uh, to come back from cancer, because when you know you talk about cancer, you talk about death. Yeah, and 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 that's all we know is is death from cancer, and to know all of that has transpired and everything that that was what happened, and then to come from that, so that was my biggest accomplishment. Yeah, that's unbelievable. And by this by this time in your career, I mean, talk about going through some 
some trials and some tribulations. It, oh my God. That's unbelievable. You know, you, you look at guys and you know, they say, Hey, you've never walked in his shoes. Well, you listen, yeah. <laughs> you listen, to, you listen to Boogie <laughs> on the Boone podcast. You'll see what it's like yeah. to, to be at the height yeah. and to be at the bottom and, and the way you just kept getting yeah. up and you move on. And, and I wrote a book called born to play and I named it born to play because I felt at that time, uh, all the things that I had gone through physically and mentally, and I was still here playing at a high level that I was born to play this game. And that's why I chose that title. Born to play. Mm -hmm. You're listening to the Boone podcast. Check it out. Yep. That's the Boone podcast. Uni, uni, uni. Uni, uni. So you go 99, 2000, (laughs) the Cardinals, you finish up with the Giants and you retire after Mm -hmm. the 01 season. Yes. But 2004, Reds Hall of Fame calls Eric Davis being inducted in the Reds Hall of Fame. How'd that feel? It was huge. It was huge. Um, just knowing the history of that franchise and how many great – I didn't even know they had a Hall of Fame. Until they called me, I did not know they had a Hall of Fame. So – because prior to that, I don't, I don't even know when they resurrected it. I know they had it before, but we never went to a ceremony when I was playing here. So I didn't even know that it existed. And, and once I started to realize the importance of the players, and I've always knew I'm a, I'm a baseball advocate. And so knowing how many Frank Robinson and Bobby Tolan and to Pete, to, to Ted Kazuski, to, uh, it was so many players that wore that uniform. And I mean, wore it with some, with some damage, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It had accomplished a lot of things. And to be a part of that was just mind-blowing. This is mind-blowing. I would say she was the most humbling feeling I ever had. Biggest influence in your life, Eric? Outside of my father, probably Dave Parker. Um, because of the time that I was had, came to the big leagues and and the connection that we instantly had because of the things that he had gone through and he was still going through at that time. So because, you know, he was still dealing with that drug situation in Pittsburgh. And with him and Dale Barra and that big old drug thing that they had at that particular time. And I can remember him telling me that if you ever, ever get in the game, saying that I have outpaced And nobody outside of my daddy could ever tell me that to, and get away with it. But just his presence and his genuality behind wanted to see me and adopt me as his son. Everything that I did and learned was from him. Just how to go about being a professional, how to do certain things, how to work, uh, how to talk to people, how to, how to treat people, how to not let people see you sweat, uh, how to be calm in the most difficult situation. Now, all of that I learned from him. Uh, on the baseball field, I learned it in life and stuff from my dad. But as a competitor, everything had to come from him. 
Well, Eric, and David, even back then, though, know, every every everybody raised you. Yeah. All the parents, and you know, when you got to leave, people would talk to you. Be like, "Boy, why are you saying so hard? Boy, just do this and do that and do this and do that." So all of that was a part of my history, and growing up, all of it. It's a, it's a absolutely fascinating story, um, Eric. I want to thank you so much for coming on today. This this is awesome, and and people are going to love this this Boone podcast for sure. What we do at the end of the Boone podcast is we bring in the voice of the Boone podcast, Dan Levy, to ask Eric a question from the fans. Dan, hello, Eric. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing okay. All right. This one comes from Jeff in good old Scottsdale, and he wants to know, growing up, who was the better b-ball player, you, Daryl Strawberry, or Byron Scott? I would give it to Byron Scott because he developed faster than I did. Uh, Because when we played together when we was 11 years old all the way up, and he had a jump shot like you saw him with the Lakers, Spooning. His jump shot was just like that when we was 11 or 12 years old. So he kind of had it fixated in his mind more than I did or Daryl probably. But uh, I would give it to him and stuff, but I wouldn't fall now. I wouldn't fall. <laughs> and the last one is, it's a bonus question from Todd from Anaheim. Do you think you could have made it to the NBA if that's the direction you were going to go? Hands down. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No question. All right. Yes. Well, Eric Davis, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We appreciate you jumping on. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you. Mailbag. All right, Brett, you know that sound. It's time to do the Brett Boone mailbag. Ready to dig in? Let's do it, Daddy. All right. Mark in Seattle. Brett, what is your favorite meal? If you were going to the chair, what would your last meal really be? I could go all over the map. Uh, I'm going to just, I'm going to keep it basic. I'm going to say Philly or New Jersey style pizza. Ooh. I thought you were a chicken wing guy. A what? I thought you were a chicken wing guy. I love, if you cook it right, I love everything. (laughs) But I, you know, there's so many things I'd want to get. I just simplify it. Give me a, a, Back East Thin Crust Pizza. Got it. That, that does sound about right. Okay, let's go back into the old mailbag and dig out number two. Brett, this one is from Mike in Phoenix. What is the best hitting tip anyone has ever given you? Let it rip. Let it rip. And that's what I always did. Oddly enough, uh, that's the exact same advice I give my son when he's got a stomachache. <laughs> different let it rip but i i feel you dan <laughs> let it rip do you remember who gave that to you was it your dad or was that a hitting coach no because you know especially when you get into in professional baseball you know you got so many people pulling at you from so many different angles that want to tell you uh make changes you have some guys that want to change it the good guys let you be you and figure it out yourself but the best guys, it's always when it, when we try to over oversimplify or over uh, analyze our swings, it's better to, to step back, clear your mind of everything, see that ball, and knock the crap out of it. 
All right. Well, that'll do it for the Brett Boone Mailbag. And that's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director, producer, and also the voice of the podcast. Executive producer is all handled by the one, the only, the man, Rich Herrera. Digital content gets taken care of by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends. And make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.